Look with me, please. Philippians. Philippians chapter 3 this morning as we move forward in our study of this book of Philippians. Paul's epistle to the church at Philippi. Uh, We've spent much time making our way, progressing through the book up to this point. We begin our reading this morning in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 6. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit, and rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath, whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you again for the opportunity to open the Word of God this morning. We pray again that we might have attentive hearts and minds, that your Spirit would provide us discernment and understanding the truth that is before us. We thank you for the revelation of Jesus Christ within the Word of God. And Lord, we do pray this morning that you would guard our thoughts and our hearts and our words. And may it be that every thought, every word from our mouth, every thought and meditation of our heart might be pleasing, that it would be acceptable in your sight. Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you and be seated. We've spent the last 14 weeks examining chapter 2 of Philippians, and during this time, we discovered that Paul expounded upon the excellence of the example of Jesus, the excellence of following Jesus, and the excellence of the fellowship that is experienced in our Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, when Paul sets the thesis statement for this, for this epistle, he does so, and again, if you don't know this, I want to mention it so that you understand. This is significant in all of Scripture and understanding Scripture. In the epistles within the New Testament, you will find that in, in almost every case, there is a thesis statement that is made within the first chapter or, or near the beginning of the epistle in which the writer is setting the groundwork or the stage for what he is going to be Uh, conveying the truth he is conveying or the focus of that truth he is conveying throughout the epistle and so we know that within uh within chapter 1 and verse 10 uh, verses 9 and 10 together but verse 10 paul states that the philippian believers might approve things which are excellent in other words that they might acknowledge and therefore live according and and pursue or seek after those things which are excellent and excellence in that, or excellent or excellence in used in this context, it means superior. And so what Paul is actually saying is that we are to be pursuing, or the Philippian church was to pursue, acknowledge, and then live according, pursuing the things that are excellent or superior. And then he gives a whole list of what this means throughout his epistle. He consistently, within every chapter, addresses that which is excellent. Although he does not use that specific word, in every chapter, yet he does, at least in one, we know, in chapter 3, but yet he does not use the term or the word, but he still is teaching that very truth concerning 
pursuing that or living according to that which is superior, understanding that Christ is superior to all other things. So this morning, we begin our examination of the third chapter of Paul's epistle to the Philippians. Again, I remind you that chapter divisions and verse divisions have been added years after the scriptures had been given to man by God and authors had written that which God had spoken. But yet, uh, chapter divisions and verse divisions exist for our benefit that we might have points of reference that otherwise we would not have or would not understand. But just because there is a chapter division, that does not always mean there is a division within the thought and verses the same way. There are many verses that actually, it could be a multi- multiple verses, 10, 13 verses, that actually is one sentence or one in the Greek. It would be one sentence or one thought, and it would not be divided into these short verses as we would have them in, the, in, our, in our translations uh, today. And so it's important to recognize that. So as we begin chapter 3 of Philippians, though there is obviously in this particular case, there is somewhat of a a break in thought. That is not always the case, and it's important to acknowledge and recognize that. But we do begin this morning in chapter 3, as we've read, verses 1 through 6. And before we begin our study of this portion of this epistle, I believe it would prove beneficial for me to provide you a list of the divisions within this chapter, because we're not talking about verse divisions but we're talking about the divisions that exist within the entirety of the chapter by paragraph or by thought. In verse 1, Paul explains his effort to provide a safeguard for the church. And these are the five divisions in chapter 3. In verses 2 through 6, Paul declares the superiority or excellence of knowing Jesus. He even says, if you remember, those things which were gained to me, I counted loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. So for the superiority of knowing Jesus Christ. Verses 7 through 11. Uh, Paul declares the, uh, the superiority of, of, of knowing Jesus. I'm sorry, verses 2 through 6. I, I, I skipped one there. Paul exposes the error of the Judaizers who attempted to deceive the church. Verses 7 through 11, Paul declares the superiority of knowing Jesus. Verses 12 through 16, Paul affirms his desire and commitment to grow in the knowledge of Christ. And then in verses 17 through 21, wrapping up the chapter, Paul exhorts the church to follow his example in the commitment he had to know Christ. So we begin this morning with the first of these in reality, and in, in verse, uh, we've read verses uh, 1 through 6, and we see verse 1, he says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. And he says this in verse 1, of course. And Paul is giving some reminders here now, because he says to write the same things to you. So he's speaking of reminding them of things that he's already spoken or have, uh, he's already written to them at some point. And so here we see in verse 1, there is safety. Paul is saying, remember, there is safety and repetition of the truth. There is safe, there's a safeguard in the repeating of the truth, in the repetition of the truth, in the continued teaching of the truth. And he says again, verse 1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you. To me, indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. This chapter transitions from Paul's charge to the church in the previous chapter, chapter 2, to a reminder of the importance for the church to remain guarded against false teachers and false teaching. He begins this warning by exhorting the church to rejoice in the Lord. Look at the first part of verse 1 again. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Now, Paul begins this portion of the letter with a word that may seem out of place at first glance. Because obviously there's a whole other chapter after chapter 3. 
There's four chapters to the epistle of Philippians. And so when he says, finally, it is not just some false conclusion. And then he goes on and makes another conclusion. But rather, this, this word is used in this text, in this context. It, 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 his use of this term, finally, is not necessarily an announcement of his conclusion, but rather it means as for the rest. And we understand the implication of its use in this verse to mean whatever happens. Now we see that this makes sense when you understand what Paul was conveying in the word because he's actually saying, finally, or whatever happens, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And this is consistent with the scripture's teaching. It's consistent with Paul's teaching throughout his many epistles. We find this word used once more in the final chapter of this epistle in chapter 4. In chapter 4, verse 8 of Philippians, Paul again says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of a good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Now, in this particular case, in chapter 4, verse 8, we understand the use of the word to be introducing the actual conclusion to Paul's epistle, in which Paul directs the church to, again, dwell on things that are excellent or superior, whatever things are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, good report. If there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Dwell on that which is excellent. Dwell on that which is superior, as we see consistently taught throughout the epistle. While in chapter 3, Paul is saying to the Philippian believers in verse 1, finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. He's saying, whatever happens or in all things, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. But just verses later in chapter 4, Paul again exhorts the Philippians in chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I say rejoice. So this is a consistent teaching here of Paul concerning the Philippians and to the Philippians, saying rejoice in the Lord, continue to rejoice in the Lord. Whatever happens, rejoice in the Lord. And that is what Paul is, is intimating here in this text. He continues in chapter 3, verse 1, the latter part of verse 1. He states, To write this thing, the, thing, the same thing to you, things to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Now, in the latter verses of chapter 2, Paul instructed the Philippian church to receive Stephen and Epaphroditus with joy, and we saw that last week in the prior week. And he did so based on his commendation of each within this letter. Within his letter of commendation, Paul testified, as you remember, to the faithfulness of both men regarding their commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, their commitment to the gospel, their commitment to the care of the Philippian church. So after the commendation of these two men, Paul then warns of the danger of those who would deceive and pervert the gospel and the necessity for the church to remain on guard against such deceivers. Paul provides this reminder as a safeguard for the church and was happy to do so, he says. Paul further explains that repetition is good when it concerns the truth. And for it is through repetition that we are reminded of things that otherwise we may allow to slip as the book of Hebrew warns us. In Hebrews 2 verse 1, we're told, Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. We learn by repetition, and we are reminded things through repetition. And the truth of God, as it is repetitively taught to us, as we repetitively read and study the truth of God, it, it, we continue to see uh, perspectives and, and, of course, grow in knowledge and understanding of the very truth of which we are reminded. 
But nonetheless, we need to be reminded even of the same primary truth that is present that we not fail to live therein. Simon Peter also wrote concerning the importance of reminders in 2 Peter 3 verses 1 and 2. He said, the second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. So here Peter is saying, I'm writing this as a reminder. This isn't new to you, but you need to be reminded. As a matter of fact, it's not only uh, that it's not something new to you. He says, but this is that which was spoken by the holy prophets of old, the Old Testament. He says, and now the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, of course, Jesus Christ. And so Peter is saying, it's important that I remind you, the book of Hebrews is saying, Give earnest heed. And how do we give earnest heed? One way is through repetition, being reminded of the importance and the gravity of the truth which is before us. So Paul says, remember, this is a reminder he has given to the Philippian church. He says, remember, there is safety and repetition of the truth. But then second, Paul says, remember, while there is a safeguard and repetition of the truth, don't forget or remember, remember this, there are many who pervert the truth of Christ. In verse 2, he says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. Now, the word concision means mutilation. And there's a reason this term is used in this reference and context in relation to what Paul is about to say concerning the circumcision. Now, let me explain that to you. The Jews were following after the token of the Abrahamic covenant, which was fleshly circumcision, and the Gentiles are referred to in Scripture as the uncircumcision because they were not part of the Abrahamic covenant, and therefore they were not taking of the token or following after the token of this covenant which God had given with Abraham. And so he says here that, that you must beware of dogs, of evil workers, and beware of the concision. Now here what he's speaking of is the word concision literally means mutilation, as I mentioned. And the point behind the statement or what Paul is conveying, the truth he is conveying, is that the circumcision referring to the religious tradition of the Jews was nothing more than mutilation within the New Testament context. Paul refers to these who pervert the gospel as dogs and evil workers. These are the people who attempted to add to grace working evil And by their actions, they are therefore denying the very sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must remember this truth. For if one must add to the work of Christ, it could only therefore mean that Jesus Christ is not sufficient. So if you have to add to the work of Christ, then Jesus is not sufficient. And that's what you're saying by adding or attempting to add to grace or to the work of Christ. And that's why this statement is here when he says, beware of the concision, He's saying these who Jews or anyone who would think that physical fleshly circumcision had any part in making them a believer or follower of Jesus Christ because it had none. And he's saying that means nothing. And we'll see that further in other texts as we'll look at this morning as well. The reminder and warning Paul provided is specific. Just as Paul's correction to the churches of Galatia was also very specific. Paul had rebuked the churches of Galatia for putting confidence in the flesh or in the works of the flesh. In Galatians 3, 1 through 3, Paul writes to the Galatian church, or churches of Galatia, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This only would I learn of you. 
Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? The word perfect in this context in Galatians 3, it means accomplish or complete. So in other words, Paul is saying, he's asking the Galatians, he said, I would learn this one thing of you. And what he is posing the question by letter form, saying, I want you to answer one question for me. Did you come to Christ by the works of the flesh, by keeping the law, or was it by faith? And then he says, or that which God began in his spirit by bringing you into the family of God, baptizing you into the body of Christ, not water baptism, spiritually being born again into the family of God through Jesus Christ. He says, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Is that work of salvation completed by the efforts of your flesh and things you are doing? In other words, let me just really simplify this for you. Paul is saying to the churches of Galatia, he's saying, this salvation is of God and it's based on the sufficiency of Jesus Christ alone. And if you think you need to add to that, you are therefore declaring Jesus is not sufficient and you think that you are capable by your religious works, by your religious actions, by your religious faithfulness, you now are capable of perfecting that which Christ has completed because he's not sufficient to do it. You have to help him along. Let me say this to you again. I am neither saved by the works of my flesh, nor am I sanctified by the works of my flesh. I am not completing or perfecting the work that God has begun. It is Christ in us that is performing and completing this work. And Paul is rebuking the church for this very reason. So Paul asks, do you accomplish or complete this work of salvation by the works of your flesh? Paul began his letter to the Galatian churches by expressing his astonishment of how quickly they had abandoned the Lord by their acceptance of another gospel, which was a perversion of the truth of the gospel. He said in Galatians 1, 6, and 7, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. As in the case of the churches of Galatia, it was also the Judaizers who had infiltrated the church at Philippi who were attempting to persuade the Philippian believers to trust in the works of their flesh for their salvation and their sanctification, rather than fully trusting and resting in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Within this portion of our text, Paul speaks of the importance of being reminded to guard against such heresy creeping into the church. Then number three leads us into verse three, in which Paul says, Remember, place no confidence in the flesh. For we, verse three, are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit, and rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So what Paul is saying is if there were one who could claim rights by birth, religion, position, passion, and works, it was Paul. As Paul explained, again, verse 4, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any man thinketh he had whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. 
What he's saying, what he's saying is, if, if anyone really thinks that they can can boast in what they've accomplished or who they are by lineage or who they are in, in religious activity or religious uh, ministry or religious duties or responsibilities or traditions, if anyone thinks that they can boast of passion and zeal, he says, there may be some who think they can do so, but they need to understand if anyone's able to do that, I can do that more than they. I have, I have the resume, Paul is saying. Check out my resume. You want to see my resume? Look at my resume. But Paul's not saying that in a boastful manner. Here's what he's saying. Look at my resume. You know what? It's useless. It means nothing. What I have done, where I have been, what my position, my passion, my zeal. Paul goes on to say in the next verses, as you'll read, as we get to Lord willing next time, but next week, Paul says, what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for the excellency of knowing Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, oh, here's my resume, and I've got an impressive one. But it is absolutely useless. It is garbage. It means nothing to me, because once I came to know by faith Jesus Christ, everything else is inferior. It all means nothing. So Paul is saying, I rejoice in knowing Christ. And if you think you can boast of things you've done, oh, I could too, but it's meaningless. It is absolutely useless and has no value. Paul is saying, Pharisee of the Pharisees was I, Israelite among Israelites, religious zealot compared to no other. Yet Paul stated in verse 3, notice what he says going back now to verse 3, for we are the circumcision. He's saying, oh, we are the Jews. We are the ones who follow tradition and such of the Old Testament. But then he says, but we worship God in the Spirit. So he's saying we're not depending on those things. It's just we were brought up in this, but yet we understand by faith in Christ, we are redeemed and set free from the bondage of the law. And he goes on to say, and rejoice in Christ Jesus. You have to understand the contrast here. He's saying, I don't rejoice in what I can show you of who I am and what I've done. I boast only in Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, and have no confidence in the flesh. Now, Paul is not saying, I can't trust my flesh, though that is true too. Paul is saying, I have, there is no value before God in anything that I have done or what I have become or what I have been or how people view me or my knowledge, my, 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 my memorization of the Torah, of Old Testament law. He says, none of that means anything. I have no confidence in myself whatsoever, and I cannot. My confidence is in Jesus Christ alone, and I boast in him. So the true circumcision, as we understand, were not those who had followed in the token of the Abrahamic covenant, but being circumcised by being circumcised in the flesh. But it's those who had been made a part of the Abrahamic covenant by the circumcision of the heart. In Romans 2, 28 and 29, we read, Paul wrote, For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. That's what he's talking about. Neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Paul's emphasizing the same truth here, saying, I cannot boast in what I have done and what I've become and who I am or what I accomplish. I can boast only in that which Christ has done and that which he has accomplished. 
Paul further explained in Romans, it is not in the flesh, but by faith, which we are, in chapter 4, Romans, verses 1 through 12. He says that by faith, we are made part of the family of God, not by some outward action. What shall we say then? That Abraham, our father, is pertaining to the flesh, hath found. For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also, and the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. Let me sum this up for you. Here's what Paul is saying. If one believes they are justified by the works, by works of the law or obedience to the law, if that's what their salvation is rooted or based upon, he says, then we reckon salvation as that and reckon means here that we credit or account salvation as that which is indebted to that which is it, we is owed to us we are the god is indebted to us because we've done good and right therefore we get this because of what we've done he says but this is not the case at all he says remember circumcision is a token of the covenant the sign of the covenant that was received by god or by abraham or to abraham by god and we understand that it was received prior to circumcision. So he's saying this has nothing to do with this physical outward sign of the covenant. The covenant was made before Abraham had ever even been circumcised or circumcised his children or anything else. So he's saying this has no value before God as these Judaizers were testifying that it did. And notice as well when he speaks and says that, um, that it's reckoned uh, now to him that worketh, verse 4, is the reward not reckoned of grace but of debt in Romans 4, Romans 4, 4. He says, to him that worketh is the reward, not reckoned of grace, but of debt. So again, he's saying, it's a credit of, because I'm, God's indebted to do this for me, I'm earning this, and therefore it's that of debt that I receive this, not of the goodness and unmerited favor of God. And I said years ago when teaching through Romans, if you recall, I reckon grace. I credit grace. I account grace. It's nothing to do with me or with you. It is the grace of God by which we are redeemed. It's the grace of God by which we are are sanctified, uh, justified, and ultimately glorified. Galatians 5, 1 through 6. Again, Paul dealing with the churches of Galatia concerning this very matter. He says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again in the yoke of bondage. Now, again, the bondage he's speaking of here is religious bondage. He's not just merely saying, don't get caught up in sin again, though religious bondage is sinful. He is saying that don't get caught up into believing that the works of your flesh is what has any value or merit with God because it doesn't. He says, verse 2, Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. Oh, 
Here he's saying, oh, if you're depending on the works of the law, then Christ is of no benefit to you because you're saying Jesus isn't sufficient anyway, and you're the one able to earn or, or receive this on your own accord. He said, for I testified again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. So this is the sum of the matter. Paul is saying, look, your works mean nothing. And the fact that you say, well, I'm not working for this, that means nothing either apart from faith in Christ. He says, it is faith in Christ by which you are redeemed, by which you are saved, you are sanctified and glorified, justified. So Paul says, remember, give attention to these truths. There is safety in the repetition of the truth. One of the things, as you know, I often do, which did not do much this morning because we're entering into another chapter, another thought and break in thought, introducing a new thought. But often, you know, I, re, I go through, uh, you know, several minutes of, of, of going through a, a review of the previous week as we progress through Scripture. And I believe that to be extremely beneficial, not only for you, but for me as well. But we are being reminded of what the Scriptures are speaking of as we now enter into receiving more truth of God's Word. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. I've told you this before, but it is good for you. And I'm not sorry, it's not difficult, and I don't grieve for doing it. And it's a safeguard for you, the repetition of the truth. Remember that. Then he says, remember, while you understand that repetition is a safeguard for the church, repetition of truth, that is, there are many who pervert the truth of Christ. And then three, remember to place no confidence in the flesh. Remember, Jesus Christ alone is sufficient. That's what Paul is saying. As I reminded you through repetition in our study through Paul's epistle to the churches of Galatia, Jesus Christ is either all-sufficient or He is not sufficient at all. And we know the truth. He is all-sufficient. But if you don't see Him as all-sufficient, then what you're really doing is viewing Him as though He is not sufficient at all. Let's stand together in prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace and thank you for the truth of the testimony of the sufficiency of our Lord Jesus Christ.